Hi, everybody. Billy Holting here. Hey, thanks for tuning in. We've got a great guest tonight on the Jazz Roundtable, studio and jazz keyboard legend Don Randy, who is part of the Wall of Sound and the Wrecking Crew. Cats that dominated the recording industry in L.A. back in the 60s and 70s. And even if you don't know their names, you've heard them on countless hit records. Well, Don tells us stories about so many artists he played for, including Elvis, Nancy Sinatra, Frank Zappa, and the Beach Boys. And he also talks about the great producers back in the day, including Phil Spector, Brian Wilson, and Jerry Fuller. And of course, he plays for us as as well. I'm sure you're going to dig it. As always, the Jazz Roundtable is recorded in front of a live internet audience. I've edited a bit from the original show, taking out the reading of chat room comments and tip shoutouts. They don't work so well in the podcast format, but everything else is there from the live show. The shows are free, but if you'd like to leave us a little something in the tip jar, I explain how to do that during the show. But please note that live at zero bpm.com is spelled live A-T-Z-E-R-O-B-P-M dot com. We always love it if you subscribe and leave a review as they really help us spread the word. And you know, I want to make this show better and you can help if you just please send any ideas to podcast at live at Z-E-R-O-B-P-M dot com. That is podcast at live A-T-Z-E-R-O-B-P-M dot com. Thank you and have fun listening. Welcome to the Jazz Roundtable, brought to you by Live at Zero BPM, with your host, Grammy Award-winning percussionist and mallet player, Billy Holting. Tonight's guest, Don Randy. If you care to donate, click on the donate slash tip jar link in the description or on our website at live at zero bpm.com slash tip jar. You can also tip on Venmo at Z-E-R-O-B-P-M. And now, let's get to the music with your host, Billy Halting. Hey, everybody in Internet Land. Thank you for coming to another show. This is the Jazz Roundtable number six, and we got Don Randy here. Don is a, a jazz staple in Los Angeles. He's also an amazing studio musician, having played with the Wrecking Crew, uh, the Wall of Sound for years. Played on, You've all heard him play, whether you knew it or not. Uh, he's also the owner of the Baked Potato, the, the famous jazz club, and my personal favorite here in Los Angeles. So we're going to get to Don. He's got a lot of great stories. We're going to talk about his book. We're going to talk about the old days. We're going to talk about what he's doing now. Talk about producers, directors, you're going to have a blast. But let me just say, if you're watching, and I'll mention this a couple times, please like or subscribe or whatever page you're on, Facebook or YouTube or Twitch, like, subscribe, follow us, do all that sort of thing. Also, if you want to give a tip, we're all tip-based here, 100%. We don't have any sponsors or anything. Any bit helps. If you're enjoying the show and you want to reach out, that'd be great. Go ahead and do that. And uh, let's see, I am I'm going to be... Uh, in the chat rooms to see who's here. I can already see we have a couple of our regulars here. Rick, Toby, and Kim are here. So let's get right to Don. Where is he? There he is. Hey, Don, how are you? Fine. Hi, Billy. Great to be here, man. So full disclosure for everybody out there, I've known Don for 30-plus years. I've played in his band a few times, and uh, we've actually gone on tour to Iceland and Norway together. So, And uh, I also play in the Wrecking Crew tribute band with him. So I know Don pretty well, and I'm learning stories I didn't know. So this is going to be a really fun night. But uh, let's talk about – well, Don's career – like I said before, he played on a million records, and including you know Jan and Dean, Frankie Lane, The Crystals, Doris Day, a ton of Motown stuff when they moved out to L.A., The Honeys, Keely Smith, Lou Rawls, The Bootleggers, The Ronettes, Frank Sinatra, Glenn Yarborough, uh, Nancy Sinatra, Sonny and Cher, and we're going to talk about a lot of that. But uh, Don, let's, let's go back and do what I like to call the origin story. So tell us, you know, growing up, when did you start playing piano and what was the situation? Well, I grew up in a, in a place called Woodridge, New York, 
which was at the heart of the Catskill Mountains. And uh, my father had a, a, a deli restaurant that most of the agents would book all the acts that appeared all over the Catskill Mountains. They would, it looked like a bookie joint in the back of the restaurant because they had all their phones, and they would place acts in all the hotels, and they were very, very busy, especially through the Second World War years. That was a big feature to bring up great entertainment from New York City to the Catskill Mountains. And uh, I was five and a half, and my dad asked me, would you like to play piano? Because I, I was always doodling at the piano in the back of, of the restaurant, and occasionally I would sit there and actually pick something out. So he, I, he got me a teacher, Milton Jacobs, and I went fishing and didn't go to my first piano lesson. I forgot about it completely. And uh, of all things, it was ice fishing, too, and bitter cold. I'll never forget it. And I got back, and my dad said to me, did you forget something? And that's when I remembered. So I went the next day, and from that day on, uh, it, it just, I, well, love of the piano, but it was all classical music that I was playing from, from that age till about 15 to 16 years old. Now, uh, yeah, so uh, now when did you first start playing with other people? Well, right around when I was 15, I would hear all the acts rehearsing with their musical directors in the back of my father's restaurant. Mm -hmm. And one time a pianist didn't show up. And I said, well, I could play that, you know. And I went, and that was the first gig I did. I became the pianist for that, that one act. And we did three shows on Friday, three shows on Saturday, and three shows on Sunday. I was 15 years old. Wow. And I just, I just loved what I was doing. It was fun playing live which is something I've always loved doing, and, and having uh, to play for with, with bands, because all the hotels had bands, and here was this 15-year-old kid playing with all these guys from New York. They were all in pit bands that yeah. worked all the Broadway shows. Well, you had a good story about your first jam session that you showed up to. Which, which one? <laughs> when, <laughs> you told me a story about the first one you showed up to, and you didn't really know... You had no idea what to do. You oh, absolutely. I, I was. <laughs> thanks for making me remember. <laughs> I was working for a record distributing company called California Records, mm -hmm. and they had all the East Coast jazz and all the West Coast jazz. I, I was, I think, 18 years old or 19 years old at that point. And uh, I kept listening to the greatest artists, you know, Miles Davis, Sonny Coltrane. And then on the East Coast, uh, that was from the East Coast, on the West Coast, there was great piano players. Hampton Hawes and Pete Jolly, and they had the Lighthouse All-Stars, and they were all, so I got to both worlds all day long while I was a stock boy, and one of the guys that, that worked there used to go to jam sessions. He says, why don't you come to one with me? So he went to one at a place called Marianne Surf Club, which was at 6th Street and Western Avenue, uh, in, in uh, actually it was a block from Western Avenue, and uh, um, it was a great jazz club. And they, on Sundays, they'd had open jam sessions, and they forced me to get up there and try and play. And I, I couldn't even play a blues at that point. <laughs> and I just sat there, but I just loved the thrill of hearing a drummer take a fill and the bass player. And I said, oh, I better, this is where I'm going to end up, you know. And I knew it right from, from that. I just loved it. And I, I listened to so much music, and then I started to play it little by little, but little by little. And the woman asked me uh, if I would like to have the gig at Marianne Surf Club. Oh, wow. And she had a wonderfully tuned every week a great gra baby grand piano. So I had a trio, the, my first trio, Don Randy Trio. 
And we played there, and little by little, somebody on the Sunset Strip said they heard me and told a club owner out of a club called Sherry's where Hampton Hawes played and Pete Jolly played and Stu Williams, a lot of great Marty Page. Marty Page worked Sunday nights with a great bass player by the name of Joe Mondragon, mm-hmm. both monster musicians. And, and uh, they had to go on tour, so he said, would you like to play the off night? I said, okay. He asked the club owner if I was working on Sunday because he knew her, Marianne. She said, sure. So we ended up playing the off nights at Sherry's. Only the first two weeks was with a duo. He couldn't have a, a, a trio. They just had bass player piano. And I told him, I said, I can't do this anymore because I have to have a trio. Mm-hmm. So we figured it out and, and we made it for a trio in that uh, little area behind the piano bar. And it was an exciting time because he then asked me if I wanted to play there five nights or six nights a week. And that's when I had to leave the other gig. Right. And I finally did leave the other gig and and, and got a, a gig with Pat. And what's really interesting is Pat was a union house, so we had to join the union. We joined the musicians' union way back then. And have, I have been in, in the union ever since. That's but great. But can you imagine a club owner playing all, paying that a union scale and wow. paying the pension and the health and welfare? And this was, I mean, I didn't know about it, but he did. And yeah. uh, we were there from 1957 almost till 1970. Wow. Because you moved to L.A. in 54, right? Right, 1954. 17. But now let's go back a little bit before that. Tell us about your very first gig ever. My very first gig ever. With uh, with the boxer. <laughs> I was 15 years old. And my one of my teachers, Irving Hertz, was a, an amazing musician, one of the great pianists of all time, but also a great arranger and great teacher of music. And he wasn't feeling very well. I didn't know that he was sick at that time. And he said, you had to help me out at the sports b- banquet. He says they're having a sports banquet for all the teams at this hotel. They've donated it. And Rocky Marciano was going to be there. I said, wow, what what am I going to do? Thank you for inviting me. He says, you're going to play the piano for Rocky Marciano. Otherwise, he won't do the, the uh, sports banquet. I said, well, what is he going to do, dance or what? No, he says he's a singer. <laughs> so <laughs> here I am, uh, and I'm a big fight fan, and so is my dad. We... So here I'm going to – I get to meet Rocky Marciano, the nicest guy in the world, and we rehearse. He does two – he had like an Irish tenor voice. Here's this big, tough guy, but his voice was really high, and I forget the songs we did. He did two – one Irish tune and, and one kind of like a an Italian song, but they both were like, you know, the high tenors. And uh, so that was my first gig, playing for Rocky Marciano. Pretty wild, actually. <laughs> That's great, and uh – then you moved out to L.A., like I said, in, in uh, 1954, and you went to school out here, and, and you, you told us about the job. You were working at a record store, and that's where you really got exposed to jazz and listening to it. Uh, so, okay, so moving forward, how did you go from that to start getting the session calls? Who, well, who did you meet? Who, let me, let me just go back for a second. Oh, okay. My dad, in his restaurant, he had the first, like, outdoor speakers in front of the restaurant, and he was a big Nat King Cole fan. 
And most people don't realize it. That's a, the, he was an incredible pianist at the same time. And then, of course, Art Tatum and, and Oscar Peterson, they all came. But the first guy I got to listen to was Nat King Cole, which I thought was pretty wild, and I was a fan and still am to this very day. But when we came to California, I, I had to go to school. I was 17 and a half, and everybody at the L.A. Conservatory was on the G.I. Bill, and they were there mm-hmm. to learn. I came out to have a party, and there was no party. Everybody was – I had a really bear down, and I had great teachers. I was very lucky, and uh, that's where I went to school, and then I went to City College, and then I went to SC for a minute, you know, uh-huh. to pick up special classes. But that was all 1954, 55, 56. Okay. And then – so you're, you're playing at, at Marianne's and at the other clubs, and uh, so – how did you get start getting called to do recordings? And what was this, the recording scene like in L.A. at that time? Well, it, it was just starting. I mean, it was already there, but I wasn't part of it. Mm-hmm. There were studio musicians that, that were doing yeah. sessions, you know. We later called them the Suits guys because everybody showed up. There was no smoking. Everybody had shirt and ties on, sport jackets. And that, that's the way it was in the very beginning. And all of a sudden, a guy by the name of Steve Douglas, who was a saxophone player, who went to school with Phil Spector, mm-hmm. he brought Phil into Sherry's, this club that we were working at, Sunset in Crescent Heights, and uh, right in the middle of the Sunset Strip, as they so called it. And uh, he liked what I was playing, and, and, I, and, and he was very knowledgeable about jazz, and he and I became friends almost instantly. Mm-hmm. And, and Steve also, with the three of us, were inseparable. We did everything together. And... Uh, I get a call from Stevie. says, you want to be on a recording session? I said, sure. You know, I didn't know what I was going to do. And sure enough, it was He's a Rebel with the Crystals, 1962. That was the first session I played. And little by little, uh, from then on, I got another session and another session. And all the sessions we were playing, uh, uh, in the beginning, there was three or four piano players, four or five guitar players, a horn section. Now, or, what was know. that like when you walked in? What were you ex- were you expecting? You know, four piano players. And, and I, I I walked in and just glad to be there. I, yeah. I mean, I'm going to be part of part or something. I didn't know what. Right. And but I I loved the rock and roll right from whereas most of the guys didn't care for it. I enjoyed being part of that cacophony of sound. You know. Because that was what he based it on. That was why he called it the Wall of Sound. And those were mostly jazz players in the studio then. Oh, right? yeah, sure. Yeah. Barney Kessel, Howard Roberts, Dennis Budimir. Uh, uh, you never knew. And the piano players were all had a jazz back, back, uh, background. Mm-hmm. Al DeLore, who ended up being a great – he produced most of Glenn Campbell's hits. Ah. But he also wrote songs and played a terrific piano player. Mike Rabini was another one. Mike Spencer. And one of the guitar players, a, a young kid that went to school with Phil, was Russ Teitelman. Mm-hmm. And Russ was learning every time he put, every time he stroked that guitar, he was learning something. Yeah, and became a top one of the top producers. Now you talked about also with the Wall of Sound, you have four keyboard players, four guitar players, and and Phil Spector is producing. How did he handle the, you know, having multiple instruments, multiple guys on the same instrument? Uh, well, we were, we, I always said we were the mud in his records, <laughs> in the wall of sound. We recorded at a studio called Gold Star, which had the greatest echo chamber of all time. Mm-hmm. And, and here, here we would be. You mind if I play a little bit? Play a little bit. Because this is basically... Mm-hmm. 
Saturday to do run run to do run 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 to do. That was to do run run. Yeah. He's a rebel. See the way he walks down the street. And on that part, those are called rolling eighths. Mm -hmm. So now you got to imagine me playing maybe here, somebody else playing here, (laughs) somebody playing here. So that's, he spread out, he wanted somebody on every octave of the piano. Well, so back in the day, those were mono records, right? And we all, that's right. Yeah, so you couldn't multi-track, so instead of having you play four different parts, you just got four different guys to play one. And, and he had to hire guys that were capable of not making mistakes, you know, and keep yeah. doing it. And it was very tedious because oh, he, ne- sure. he never did anything in two hours. Yeah. Except one album we did, my favorite album of all time. It was the Christmas album we did with all the Christmas songs. Right. With all the artists, it was so much fun doing, and that one we kind of went quicker on. Mm-hmm. But that's one of the great Christmas albums of all time. Now, how did he handle the guitar players? Uh, Phil knew the guitar players pretty well, right? He did. He he studied guitar. Ah. And he could go to a guitar player and say, "Can you do it on this fret? And could you play it on this fret? And like to Tommy Tedesco, could you put a capo on? I want an open sound out of your guitar." And he would spread it out the same way he did the pianos. The guitars. Uh-huh. Wow. And, you know, and, and then Russ Teitelman, who was just starting out at that point, was a straight rhythm player, you know, up and down, the, the up and down chunks. It was a lot of fun, actually. We, did, we couldn't hear everything because we were doing our own part. But when you'd go in and listen, you'd hear all this stuff coming together on one track. Yeah. F- 15 IPS. That's crazy to think that was all on one mono track. Yes, yeah. <laughs> that's, it, that was the sound. Now, how about the transition from the wall of sound to the wrecking crew? Well, there were, there were so many great uh, – you know, I was so lucky to be amongst the – Ray Johnson was one of the piano, Plas, Plas Johnson's brother, a guy by the name of Gene Garth. Link, Lincoln Mayorga came on later, a little later uh-huh. on. Mike Melvoin, uh, uh, Joe Sample. Larry Nectel, one of the great piano. Larry Nectel played the, one of the greatest piano parts of all time on Bridge Over Troubled Water. That's Larry Nectel that plays the piano on that. That mm-hmm. song is nothing without that piano play part. I, it's one of the great piano play. Uh, I see on a on a record, but we all worked together, and we all played together, and there was enough work in those days for ten of us, and everybody was busy. Yeah. And, and nobody got in anybody's way. Nobody had an ego. If they asked me to play like Floyd Kramer, I, you know, I, I, I knew what they wanted mm-hmm. because I, I didn't only listen to one station. Right. I listened to all the, all the stations. If it was country, rock and roll, jazz, whatever it was, I was able to do that. So I, I, I didn't get, if they wanted more like Ray Charles, I, I knew it. You, you knew what they – most of the producers didn't know how to verbalize it. Right. So they would ask you to do it like this or play like somebody else or could you make it a little more dark instead of saying black. I knew what they wanted. Yeah. Or so, could you make it more like Floyd Kramer? They wanted country. So you had a particular talent for sounding like anybody they wanted. That's right. I was, I was the ultimate clone. <laughs> and we all were. We yeah. all did. 
And then when Leon Russell came in, he, he, he was capable. Leon was a hell of a jazz player. Yeah. And nobody ever realized it. And Leon would sub for me at my gig at Sherry so I could do record dates when he first came from Oklahoma. Well, I think I have a photo of Leon Russell, don't I? Yeah, you do. There's you the three of us. Here. Yeah. There you go. There's Leon and I and Al Delori. That's uh, Don in the middle of the piano, and right. to his right, your left, right. <laughs> that's Leon. <laughs> yeah. And then who's the guitar player next to you? The, the, the piano player is Al Delori, mm. great piano player and great writer and producer. Very cool. Yeah, yeah I tried. I was hoping to get more photos, but I'll tell you what, I, we'll just do a little blurb about this now. I, I have the book. Yes. You've heard these hands. I've got, I have a graphic of it. Let me get that up there because it's a little easier to see. But, uh, you know, the, the subtitle is From the Wall of Sounds of the Wrecking Crew and Other Incredible Stories by Don Randy and, and Nish. Hi, Nish, if you're watching. She helped you write the book. But, you know, it's one of those things that just if you just look at the chapter names, it's either act or producer, one after another. It's truly an incredible book. And there's going to be more stories in here. So if you like the ones you hear tonight, pick up the book. It's, yeah. uh, it's, it's, it's wherever you can buy books these yes. days. Yeah, so sure. That's, uh, that's very cool. And it was fun doing. A girl who, who came into the baked potato quite often, mm -hmm. and I think you might have known her, Karen Nishimura. Oh, yeah. She really was, was a great help with me doing that and helped me formulate. She didn't try to bring all the political stuff that was going on through all those days. Mm -hmm. She just made it the story of, of the music, which was wonderful, you know. It really that's helped great. me because that's what I wanted her to be about. You know, there was so many varieties, so many different producers, the different styles of producing. Uh, Phil, Phil, you would be in you know, all day long on one song. Brian Wilson from the Beach Boys, if you went mm -hmm. to work for Brian, <laughs> you can either be out in four or five hours on one song or like when we did Good Vibrations, we were in for three months. We'd leave, come back, leave, come back, leave, come back. Was that to do the album or to do the song? That was the song. Wow. And that, that's probably got to be one of the great, great productions of all time, you know. I mean, just just th this middle section, I'll play. No, I'll start here. Good vibrations went on and on and on. And he heard it. He knew what he wanted, wherever he was. There's a section in that song. Uh -huh. There's a low organ thing where I played organ on it. Of, of, I think it might have been a low B flat. And that's all it was. He told the rest of the guys in the band, go out, I just need Don. Now, he can't see me in the studio. So I'll try and create this for you. There are baffles surrounding me all around my, my face, and all I could hear him is through the talkback of the speakers. So he said, Don, I just need you alone. I just want you to hold that note. He was working out a, a harmony part. Now, we had already been working eight and a half hours during the day, and I was tired. I really was, and I'm playing Hammond B3 on this one. All the guys are standing out in the hall, but there used to be a window in the door that you could look, look through and see inside the studio. And I look over to my left, and there's a pillow that you could sit on sometimes because those B3 seats were really hard. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking and looking, and I'm, I'm holding the pedal down of this low, 
It's done by the pedals of the organ, not by the keys. I have my foot on this low note. And Brian keeps saying, just hold it. Don't I let up. He said, no, no, just keep it going. Keep it going. And then I hear the click. He said, okay, just take a minute. And as he said that, I grabbed the pillow and I laid it over the, the foot pedal and I laid down with my head <laughs> on the bass pedal, the, the foot pedal of, of the Hammond B3 organ. And lo and behold, I fell right asleep. I went out. I was sleeping. That low note. And finally, I hear, click, click, Don, that was great. Thank you very much. We got it. We got it. <laughs> Nobody knew except Hal Blaine. Hal looked in and he said to me, did you have a nice nap? Well, here we are 50 years later, and someone tells Brian that story, and I get a call from Brian. He says, did that really happen? I said, you're damn right it did. And he <laughs> cracked up. He had no idea because he couldn't see me, you know. It oh, was that's fun. that's amazing. That's amazing. I mean, and, and everybody out there probably knows Brian Wilson from the Beach Boys, and he, sure. he produced all the, the, the hits, right? Yeah, he did. And, and when, the only song that I, I got through me was, what was it? Uh, mm-hmm. Help Me Rhonda. Yeah. Now, why, why that threw me? That, first of all, we were at a different studio. It was at TTG, mm-hmm. which was on, I guess, Highland and, and Sunset. There was a great studio. <laughs> and we walked in. Everything was written. Everything was written out perfectly. Yeah. And we sat down. We did it for a, an hour or so. And that was it. And I, as I'm playing, I said, this is a stone-cold hit. If this is not a hit, I can't – I don't know anything. And we left – and sure enough, it became like number one, uh, Help Me Rhonda. Years later, I'm, I'm sitting with Leon Russell. This is like 35 years later. <laughs> and Leon says, you know, I, I played on Help Me Rhonda. And he starts laughing. I said, no, you didn't. I played on that. He says, no, I played on it. I said, you weren't there. It's me. That was a hit record. He says, yeah, I know. But I played it on the original version of that, which got shelved. I said, what are you talking about? He said, we did it four years before that record. Wow. And I had no idea. I had no idea. Eddie Taduri is out there, and he's saying Don is one of my heroes, which is great. And he said that Good Vibrations was his favorite tune to play every night on tour with the guys in 73 to 74. Yeah. Ricky Fatar and I played double drums, and that song was more powerful than any other in the set. <laughs> <So> that's, <cool. laughs> that's great. Now, that's you're, great. you have a new album. Well, not so new. It's not your newest, but you have an album out called The Good jazzy vibrations. Yes, yeah, we and, did as as many of the Beach Boy tunes as we could in an album, and that's with the the cats that play with you at the Baked Potato. <laughs> that's right. There. Yeah. So, uh, and we're going to talk about the Baked Potato a little bit because it's like the iconic jazz club for, in in Los Angeles has been here forever. Uh, let's see, and uh, Derek Zimmerman is here, and he says hi, Don. He, hi, yeah. <laughs> Don used to. I mean, Derek used to play in your band. I went to college with Derek. He was part of the Northridge crew, and so. Yeah, it's fun. We got some. Uh, you know, speaking of Northridge, I, half of my bands over the years have been, have been from there. Yeah, drummers and percussionists That's basically right. came from Northridge. That's right. You know, let's uh, let's take a break from the stories for a second. Don, do you want to play a piece for us? Uh, a piece of what? But I'm bum. I'll tell you what I'll play. Okay. I, I had an album, the only hit album I ever had, called Mexican Pearls. Right. And it was produced by uh, Tutti Camerata. And uh, the arrangement is mine and Jack Nitchie's and Ray Pullman's. We all got together on it. And he said, I want you to go home 
and write a song. It's time for a Latin song. I want it to have a Latin flavor, almost mariachi. <laughs> I said, what are you talking about? I hate mariachi music. He says, no, you're going to like it. He says, listen to it. And I listened to the, you know, the meaning of it. I said, okay, he's paying for the date. He's paying for me to do an album. Right. So I take five albums home, and I listen to it. And that, before I, I leave the studio, he says, just think of maybe Dwayne Eddy's simple style guitar, or perhaps make it so that anybody can play the melody with one finger. Mm. And that's what I wrote. I wrote a song called Mexican Pearls. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank There's you. There's our live at zero. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There's our live at Zero Beats crowd. <laughs> they, they love you guys. Okay, so Rick Converse had a question. Sure. Were you ever on the TAMI show with the Wrecking Crew guys? Probably. I, we did the big one. We did was the TNT show mm-hmm. that Phil Spector produced. But I'm not sure about that other one. The TNT one had loads and loads of artists on it. Uh, Petula Clark, uh, um, Sunshine Superman, Donovan was on that one. I got a big kick out of him and enjoyed it working with him. But April and Nino, April, Stephen, uh, April and Nino, they, they had a big hit record at that time. And uh, that was just when Sonny and Cher was, was just getting started right after that. Sonny was, incidentally, Sonny was Phil Spector's promo man. Really? He did all the promotion. He used to walk around with a, a wad of money that, <laughs> you know, in those days, payola was legal. Yeah. Oh, it was Ill- Ill- illegal, but everybody did it, you know. And he would pay the disc jockeys, play my records, play my records. Now, you've got a good – let's do some stories here real quick because you've got a – is it uh, Sonny and Cher story? What, you know, we were talking about guys that play identifiable licks that they just came up with in the studio. Yeah. Uh, and that, that it's like signature sounds from an album, and you've got several of those, but you told me one about I've Got You. 
I've got you, babe. Yeah. <laughs> That's fun because I had played on the original, and on the original, there's an oboe. And it's Ray Pizzi doing that on oboe. I had a DX7 that had a great oboe sound. Uh-huh. And I get a call for, for a date on some, some film. And they didn't want to, they couldn't afford, they knew I was going to be playing the other parts. So they, they gave me a double for playing the oboe part on that record on the synthesizer. It was a DX7, actually, when they first came out. So I get to play that on that record. But uh, we, we did I Got You, Babe, in, in San Francisco with a gigantic rock and roll band that had three drummers in it. I mean, and, and at the Cow Palace to 16,000 kids. And <laughs> it, was, it was one of the most amazing shows because that was the first time the Righteous Brothers was on a big show. And the Animals was on that show. And uh, it, it was pretty fun. But uh, you couldn't hear anything. I mean, the, the kids were screaming so loud. Wow. That it was so. Of course, there's two changes, and and if you get turned around, you're never going to get it together, and that's what happened. <laughs> that's so. Cool. And, then, and all of a Sonny stops in the middle. and says, "What's going on? What's going on?" <laughs> so um, now you also played something on a Linda Ronstadt album. Oh, yeah, that w- that was so much fun. That album that was the Stone Ponies, mm. and it was Sound of a Different Drum, which became a big monster hit for them. But when I walked into the session, there was this beautiful harpsichord sitting there. And I said to Nick Vinay, the producer, who's playing that? He said, well, you are. And I said, oh, my gosh. So I said, okay. And I don't know what the song is. I don't see. All I can think of is it's going to be something really hard that's going to be written out. And I got a really, this is not a chord sheet thing. This is a harpsichord. All I can think of is Bach. So we start. We did another song first, and then they passed out the music for Sound of a Different Drum, which is written, incidentally, by Mike Nesmith. And I look at it, and I'm looking, and I'm looking, and, I, and all I see is chord charts. It's all, it's all a chord sheet, and when it comes to a solo on a harpsichord, it says, rock and roll, Bach style. <laughs> and I said, oh, my God. So they wanted me to play, like... And this is on a harpsichord. And it was just, it was amazing because that became a key to the record. It's in the intro and in the middle of the thing is this kind of famous uh, harpsichord solo. And it became famous, especially in school. All the universities that I, that I talk to or, or I'll get a phone call from some master class, how hard was that part to play? Everybody thinks it was a written out part, but it was all improvised. There was nothing written whatsoever except the chords. Pretty wild. That is wild. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's see. Let me, I'm going to go to a couple of story names that we have listed here. I mean, we can f- fast round some of these things. How about the Elvis story that I've heard you tell before? <laughs> we were doing, in 1968, they did a, NBC did a thing called the Comeback Special. And this was a, Elvis at his, you know, he had been away for like 10 minutes, I, as I say. He never was away, he did, but they called it the 68 Comeback Special. And they had a full orchestra. 
And we were at, um, where were we? We were at East West Studios, which was then United Western, and there's Studio A, which is a gigantic symphony studio. It's a, it's a big, big studio. But they were recording live. They had the full orchestra, and Elvis was, was there live. And we were catching up with stuff, so we were recording on Saturday. Now, Saturday means you get time and a half for NBC for television. And what you don't want to do is go past midnight. Because if you go past midnight, it's what they call golden time. Then you don't have to work the rest of the month when you do that. So he was having a problem hearing something. He couldn't hear it, and, and we kept going by. It was on Jailhouse Rock. He had a, this little eight-second cue, and we, we did another song and came back to it. He just couldn't hear this cue, and we had been working from uh, the afternoon from 12 till now it's almost midnight. It's about 11.30. And Elvis says, Don, he comes over and sits down. He says, I just can't hear this. And he hands me his phones, and I put the phones on, and in his mix was the whole orchestra. And it was driving him crazy because it was a really a rough mix. He couldn't find his cue to come in. for the, for the. I said, well, just a second. I said, go back to the booth. And I, I said, I'm going to hold on to your, your phones for a second. And I went back and forth inside. And first I had him take the strings off. Then I had him take this off. Then I had to take him the horns off. And I took the girls off. They had girl singers with them. And and, he, and he's, then I went over, I said, how is this? He said, maybe I just have more, a little more of the rhythm section. And I said, give him more. Now it's a quarter to 12. And, and time is running out. It gets to about 10 minutes to 12. And the floor manager for NBC walks over to Elvis as he's standing with me. And he goes, Elvis, would you mind? And he points to his watch. Like, you know, watch the time like that. And Elvis just looks at me and looks at the guy, and he says, are you getting hungry? I said, yes, I am. And guess what? They did. They called a break, a lunch break, at 10 minutes to 12. We didn't come back till 1.30. It must have cost NBC about $80,000. for Hurry up, would you? The queue was seven seconds long, if, wow. if that much. It was an in and out because it was a dance thing, a singing thing. Guess what? We were there. We all got paid. The whole orchestra. Wow. You know. Good to be the king. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you, Elvis. And, okay. and you know, that gets played. That gets played. They keep bringing it back so we get good residuals on it. Oh, nice. Nice. The okay. Be- okay. The, uh, Nancy Sinatra, these boots are made for walking. Yes. They sure are. <laughs> Nancy is, well, you, you said my, that's my, my, the love of my life, I swear. She and I have been together since 1966. She, she's the nicest person, the, the greatest lady to ever work for. I've watched her children grow up. Uh, and she was a, just a, a, a great human being to everyone. Everyone around her, they would do anything for her. When we were doing Boots Are Made for Walking, it's written by and produced by Lee Hazelwood. And as we're getting ready to do it, I hear them yelling at each other in the booth. And I, and I just look up, and you can hear, and Lee's telling her, no, no way we're going to do this song. It's a man's song. She says, you've got to be kidding me. This is a woman's song. And they're really shouting at each other over it. And finally says, okay, okay, you win, you know. 
And he goes out and says something to Chuck Cam- uh, to Chuck Berghoffer, who plays the great bass line on that. And we went back in, and <laughs> that became one of the monster hits of all time and a signature uh, record for her because the minute you hear that bass playing in her shows, the audience goes crazy. They know it's going to be these boots are made for walking. Yeah, when I heard that story, I like— I, I can't even imagine a man singing that song. No. I don't think anybody can. Well, he wanted to do it for himself. That's what, ah, I, <laughs> that's what it was. Uh, okay, well, next story, Lumpy Gravy, Frank Zappa. Oh, yeah. Well, we, we were actually doing a date at that point for your former boss, uh, Lou Rawls. We were doing a session with Lou, and, and I was going home. I was in, in the hallway at Capitol Records, and they grabbed me. And they said, you've got to help us out. I said, well, I'm on the way home. What are you talking about? Well, Frank Zappa is, is in Studio B. And I said, who? <laughs> I, I didn't know who Frank Zappa was at that time. He said, he's a great new rock artist and songwriter. I said, okay. So they, I go in. And as I'm walking in, I, I hear, you know, Pete Jolly and Paul Smith, two great piano players, walked out on the date. They couldn't take it anymore. They, they, they said, had enough. So I said, uh-oh, what did I get into? So I sat down, and it's a song called Lumpy Gravy. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, you can't, when you we do the Zappa stuff, as far as I'm concerned, you don't try and make a form out of it. You just take it. It starts here, and it ends here. It, 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 it's, it's nothing, and you just go with the flow of what the music is. And we did it in two takes. He was very thankful. He was the nicest guy. And I went home. And I, f- I forgot about it completely. And they had, you know, of course, they, they paid me double scale, so that was even nicer. Yeah. And uh, later on over the years, especially now, the younger people that are Zappa fans, they always come in and ask me to play it, and I can't play it. And Jamie Kime who, and yourself, who did that Zappa on Zappa tour, <laughs> nobody wants to teach it to me. And I, I'm going to have to learn it. I think Jamie said he was going to make a, a copy of it for me. Well, but it's, it's, it's interesting. I think I remember that tune because there was a lot of different keyboard parts. Yes, there were. And we had the, the benefit of getting individual tracks. And oh. So I had the mallet parts on my track. But I remember the keyboard player saying, well, you, you'd never be able to pick out this line it by was... listening to the whole thing. <laughs> so they were really grateful to have all the parts. Yeah, yeah. Jimmy should get you a copy of that. So yeah. yeah. That's it, cool. It, it was pretty amazing. You know – that that was the, the, the beauty of, of, of recording in all those days because it was live. Yeah. I didn't go in a room by myself. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't have to do it. And then then if you make a mistake, to the, like then you would redo it. Today, if I went in that same room, if I was in a room by myself and I made a mistake, they'd say keep on going because you did it right three other times and then yeah. they cut and paste, you know. It's 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 just so different. Well, yeah, I listen to these old albums, you know, uh, the Righteous Brothers, or whoever, and uh, it's just amazing to me. It's like they just all played the track. There was none of this. Oh, I made a mistake. Go back and edit yeah. and all that sort of stuff. That's that's pretty incredible, especially when you look at the wall of sound. With sure, six hundred guys in a room. Let, let, let me see if I can find that picture. That's a well, yeah. Here's a picture from the studio. Yeah, that that's that picture you're showing there is when we were now that we were the wrecking crew. Okay. We, we were the Wall of Sound, and now we were becoming the wrecking crew, and and the wrecking crew. I'm in the very very corner. You can I'm cut off right sitting next to to Leon. All I right, think. you're you're way on the left of the photo. Uh, yes, yeah. Piano. But that's a great bass player and guitar player to the right is Ray Pullman, 
Uh-huh. And uh, there's Lyle Richards in that, too, and Hal Blaine, of course, is at the drums. But, uh, um, you know, that, that transition, when, when they started calling us the Wrecking Crew, it basically was because all the guys that were in the suits all those years mm-hmm. were kind of getting aced out. Because here we were, they, they, most of the guys smoked in those studios. They came loosely dressed. They didn't, you know, it, yeah. they weren't worried about that. And we were accused of those, those guys are going to wreck the business. <laughs> and that's how we started being the wrecking group. That's a great, that's a great name. So, hey, I think it's time for you to play a little bit more. You got another song for us? Let's see. What can I play? Um <laughs> I'll play you a song that we got to record at Capitol Records, where Dave Axelrod produced this, and it's written by Lalo Schifrin. It's the theme from The Fox. Pretty song, Lalo Schifrin. I always love it when you play that song. Mm. It's such a great tune. But uh, we have a special guest in the chat room right now. Nish has shown up. <laughs> <laughs> That's Hi, my Nish. co-writer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Nish. We, we already plugged the book. I put the thing up there. But, the, but Nish is here. You can talk to her in the chat room and <laughs> on uh, Facebook and see. That's her name down here somewhere. <laughs> Which way? My left, your left. Uh, that was very cool. Uh, somebody did ask, though, if you could talk about Loves and More Again. Loves? <laughs> well, I, I... I don't know this story, so uh, well, it'll be fun. I'll tell you what. Uh, we got a call. You know, you're a studio musician. You get a call. Mm-hmm. And it, it turned out to be the rock and roll group called Love, which had a, a major, major hit called My Little Black, what My Little Red Book. Mm-hmm. And it was written by Burt Backrack of all things. Wow. I can't even remember the song right That became a, a number one record for them. But they were basically a blues-oriented, more of a funk band. 
And actually, they were pretty stoned and drunk hmm. the whole time. But I got to play, I guess, on four or five different of their cuts, and they still play them all the time. And, and people that are, are fans of that band always ask me about them. And they were, they were nice, but they were just e- either going to be dead or get sober, you know. Yeah. Now, you have a good story about uh, Leslie Gore, It's My Party and I'll Cry If I Want To. Yeah, that and and a whole bunch of stuff that we did, and this this guy comes out from New York, and uh, hires Jack Nitchy for Leslie Gore, and Jack was a great arranger who I I work with constantly, and uh, and he was a close friend, and it turns out to be this young guy from New York by the name of Quincy Jones, and I had the greatest time. That was the first time I ever met Quincy. And uh, it was wonderful. He, he really knew what he wanted. We did, I guess, four or five different songs in that date. And we had a great time doing it. There's a, there's a poster around someplace of all of us together mm-hmm. on that date. And that was a date that uh, Tommy Tedesco was on and Don Peake, Hal mm-hmm. Blaine, and myself. And uh, it pretty wild, pretty wild. That's great. And then let's see. Okay, and I want you to talk about this because this is something that my generation might remember, but the jukebox is all over the country. And you said <laughs> that uh, Seberg was the one that did these, the, uh, the, the background music records. Yes. They, tell, tell them the story about this. This is kind of mind-blowing. It, it is. They would hire me to do, to do sound-alikes. Uh, of, of, so I hired most of the singers in Los Angeles – especially Darlene Love and her sister Edna Wright and Fanita, Fanita James. And they, they were such great, great. They were the Blossoms. But then sometimes I would use Clyde e. King and that group, and we would do all the cover records of all the biggest hits that there were. I mean, they were giant, giant hits, but they couldn't pay, uh, pay the royalties to the artists. So they would do sound-alikes. And we did. We sounded like everybody. I, I remember Julius Wechter from the Baja Marimba Band. They they wanted an album of Herb Alpert stuff, and and we wrote a bunch of original songs that sounded like the Tijuana Brass. So that was one of the albums. They 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 needed those kind of things, and we did over a thousand different songs for them. And it actually uh, they paid me between twelve fifty and fifteen dollars an arrangement. We would do seven songs in the morning and seven songs in the afternoon and go through one after the other, one after the other. The singers, though, I mean, the bands were great, but the singers, they knew every nuance of how to make those sounds, you know. So it's funny to think that, you know, listening to those jukeboxes, you think you're getting the original and you're actually getting sound-alikes. But, you exactly. Know, who's looking that closely at the album? Oh, the no, they don't. They just look, in there. They look at the titles. That's Yeah, all. the little title things. Yeah. I remember those. That's great. So uh, let's see. Let me just – I have so many notes because we, we – Don and I hang, so we came over the other day. You know, you know what's interesting too is, is the different styles of the producers. I oh, mean, yeah. Let's talk Phil, about Phil, that. Phil, Phil Spector was one style. Brian Wilson was another one, but there was a guy, loads of guys, Dave Axelrod at Capitol Records, mm-hmm. Dick Lasser, but one outstanding one, uh, they, all, they all had hit records, all mm-hmm. of these guys. Jerry Fuller at Columbia, we did the uh, uh, Union Gap, we did O.C. Smith, um, Lee Hazelwood had a bunch of hits, I did over 100 albums for him, and then Warner Brothers had a guy who was ahead of the department, Jimmy Bowen. Now, he had a, a knack better than most of these guys. Mm-hmm. For selecting songs 
the repertoire that an artist should do. He would pick Sinatra songs out, Dean Martin songs out, and a lot of other people's songs. That that and he had that knack of knowing what song an artist should sing. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody loves somebody sometime. I mean, he picked that out. That was written by Dean's piano player, incidentally. Mm. And and uh, all all these different songs. And it was always so much fun because he had the best artists that were signed to Warner Reprise. So you got to work with all those guys. We did uh, Candyman. Oh, yeah. We did Candyman in Las Vegas. It was after Sammy Davis's show. It was Sammy's, Sammy's biggest record. Yeah. And it was at midnight in a, in a studio that was right next to a railroad track, and the trains would come in, in the, at night. And you'd have to stop for the train to go by because everything would be bouncing. You could really— uh, Oh, that's funny. But, but the sound was good in there. But, but we did Candyman there, and when we started at midnight— there were no charts. It was all the charts were written by H. V. Barnum, and he had fallen asleep, and nobody gave him a wake-up call oh. till two o'clock in the morning, and then he <laughs> showed up. So we sat around for two hours. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> but we got we got that that we did four tunes that night mm-hmm. till six in the morning, and and Candyman was one of them. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. And then uh, how about the Righteous Brothers? Oh, how about them? <laughs> I've known them a long time. I, I used to know them from Orange County. Wow. You know, their first record was, they had a big record a version of Little Latin Loopy Lou. And then Phil Spector heard him and said, boy, I, I, I got to get these guys. And he did. He had them for, for, I guess, a couple of years. We did quite a few re- records. And then they left him and went with MGM uh, Records, which was good for me because they still hired me, you know. And... Uh, You've Lost That Love and Feeling is, is probably one of the great songs of all time. Unchained Melody was a – I call that the mistakes, mistake song because Phil asked Bobby to sing one alone and Bill to sing one alone, which was a big mistake. They had – the egos were just enough to break up that band. Mm-hmm. And eventually it did and then they got back together again. That, that would have never happened, I firmly believe, if they never would have sung alone. They could have done it on stage, but not on recording, you yeah. know. But now, they both got hits, you know, solely. He's, he did one of the best versions of Ebb Tide. I mean, is, is in that one, Unchained Melody, uh, So Hung on You. Uh, um, he did a song called Brown-Eyed Woman, which is incredible. Yeah. I mean, I could listen to Bill forever. Well, now, speaking of, like, you've lost that love and feeling. Yes. That intro— is that's a Phil Spector kind of signature that's been in a lot of songs, right? I mean, he, he that was Jack Nitsche. No, that wasn't. That was Gene Page on that one on Love and Feeling. We did that. Uh, that was one of the few Jack Jack didn't do. Yeah, and now, now to talk about the, the the producers, but you showed me earlier that uh, I think it was uh, Phil Spector that had a signature. Intro that was at so many parts of so many tunes. Oh well, the, the drum beat yeah. <laughs> with with how. And more drummers that played on everybody else's record. The producer would say, "Can you do that dotted quarter thing?" <laughs> and and bash on four, you know. <laughs> and that was on so many so many records. I mean, see the way he walked on his head. 
that one, a load of the Phil Spector stuff, but a load of everybody else's. I, I, one of my favorite albums that I got to do, I, and I forget to talk about this, was an album that Cannonball Adderley produced with Dave Axelrod mm. for Capitol Records. And Cannon and I hit it right off. It was a, an African girl by the name of uh, Letta Mabulu. And she could do the click sounds and all that. And it was all new music. I had never played anything with those time changes. And H.P. Barnum wrote most of those charts for, wow. for all that stuff. It was such an interesting album to do. And she was marvelous. It just never did anything. It was one of those albums that oh, kind of disappeared, you know. But it was wonderful. Now, comparing Phil as a producer with, with let's say, Jerry Fuller or Brian Wilson, did they have kind of a signature method for what they did? did they let you guys a little have free bit. Rain, or what did they do? See, J Jerry Fuller, Jimmy Bowen, and those guys. You know, there there is a reason. I think this is my own opinion. Now, the corporate guys like Jimmy Bowen, Dick Lasser, David Axelrod, when they were stuff doing doing stuff, they were working for a major label. Those major labels all were given budgets to the producers, mm -hmm. and they had to bring in three or four tunes in three hours wow. or four hours. So that's, that you were under the gun to do that, and they were under the gun to do that. So they had to really be with it, you know, and, and on top of it to know where it was going. That's why the selection of songs was so important. Mm -hmm. Now, when you worked for some of the other producers like Brian and Phil, they didn't care how long it would take because they were independent. Ah. They didn't have to wonder, worry about having to bring it in on time. Right. So it was a, it was a big difference, and they both worked. Yeah. They both worked very well. You know, Did uh, you what was it? Uh, I love you more today than yesterday. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Spiral Staircase. Yeah. What a great band! And I got to play in that band. Wow. Yeah. So that that was that was fun. Now, did you feel that they did they anybody micromanage you guys, or did they just say no? These cats know what they're doing. Just let them play. How did they handle you guys? Well, you know, sometimes somebody would come out and show you something or have an idea. Mm -hmm. And generally, that, that was a rarity, though. Um, the, the, the song was very important. Mm -hmm. You had to accompany the song. If the song didn't have it, I don't care what you played, it wasn't going to go anywhere. You right. know. So the song, and Jerry Fuller wrote some unbelievable, I mean, monster, monster hits. I, I went and saw him one night. And every song that he sang was a hit either for himself or for somebody else. Oh, wow. And after they took questions, and I, my question was, can I have your royalties for three months? <laughs> I mean, it was just absolutely incredible. That's funny. Hey, let me take a break and say hi to some of the people out there. Uh, Rick Converse uh, did say that the loves did sober up, and they're on tour again now, those that survived. <laughs> so that's, that's a, there's a happy ending there, so... Let's see. Uh, Nish does bring up a good point. She says, uh, Don not only has an amazing career, but his memory of this history is phenomenal. It really is. <laughs> you know, so many things. He brought his computer with him on the side because he's got a, a database of like 1,500 or more songs or sessions that he's played on. It's really quite amazing. And we're going to talk about a little bit more of that. But I want to – you were playing – back in the day, you were playing here the at – the Surf Shack, Marianne's, and the other places, but then you started the Baked Potato in 1970, right? Yeah. With Shelley. Yes, yeah. I, I, we started, Shelley was working at um, Cy DeVore, men's clothing. Mm. And then he went over to a shop called Bow Gentry, which became the like the hip store for all the rock and rollers and 
the Rolling Stones and the Beal. Everybody went to that store, and and uh, I didn't have a dime in those days, and they would always <laughs> let me get a suit on credit or whatever to pay it off. It was, it was a, they were really great to me, and I said, Shelley, one day you and I are going to do something together, and he became my partner. He left there and came to work with me in uh, right in the, in the first year that we opened the baked potato. And then when you opened it, how many nights a week were you playing? I was playing six nights, and then Mike Melvoin had a trio on the seventh night. Oh wow! No, we, no, we, no, we were closed on the seventh night originally, and then we were sitting around and saying we're like we're losing another night, you know. There's 52 of those in one year. Yeah. So I, Mike Mike would come in and sit in. I had a wonderful Steinway B piano that everybody loved to play on. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, so uh, it, it was a, attractive because and, uh, Keith Albright, the piano tuner who did all the studios, would tune that piano constantly. So it was always in tune. Yeah. And uh, so it, it, that's how we started, uh, playing. And then Mike Melvoin played every Monday night. Or every Sunday, I can't remember if it was Sunday or Monday, for two years or almost three years with a different rhythm section. Wow. And that became a thing. Everybody see who is he going to have. And he had some of the greatest musicians playing with him every weekend, and they were different. I don't think he repeated till like a, a year, a year later, he had somebody finally that repeated, but he was able to put it together like that. And That's Mike great. was a super pianist, too, wonderful pianist. That's 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 great, and th- so then you started opening it up, and you had other bands playing the Sunday Monday night. Sure, right? after a while, yeah, after a while, and then and then it little, and then I went on the road, so mm-hmm. I couldn't be there. I was out with Nancy Sinatra over and over, and uh, I'd come back, and and uh, it got to the point of where she started taking out my band, so my guys would be on the right. road with me, ah. and then that was a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, and it's uh, it survived this horrible last year, and you guys are doing shows, or or, or, or your very, son very, Justin is running things now. Yeah, just it's it's Justin's club. Okay, and so, and and uh, what is really interesting is the, the survival of it, in spite of all the misinformation and everything. Here we are, a year later, and <laughs> with a limited audience. Yeah, and it's it's very aggravating when when you hear that all these big places are getting unlimited. And yet the small venues right. can't can't do that, you know. And uh, yeah, and you really can't play outside at your place. No, so. no, it, it's it's not fair. It's but not the, fair. The, you know, I'm gonna let me put you up here, and uh, I'm going to put this up. Let me where where did I put it? Oh, did I forget to put it in here? <laughs> if you want to go check out the website, it is. Uh, I can get this up while we're talking. It's thebakedpotato.com. TheBakedPotato.com. Let me get – I can do this. Trust me. <laughs> I've do so many things simultaneously. Let's see. Baked and we're, we're going to play there on, on June 5th. So. Oh, you are? Yeah. Let's see if I can get the magic – there it is. So TheBakedPotato.com. Go there and check it out because Justin has really done an amazing job booking the bands in the past so many years. Uh, and it's just a killer lineup, night after night after night. And I'm even saying that because you know we have shows on every Thursday, and they have people on Thursdays as well. But if you can get out and support live music, that's that was the whole premise, the start of this show, the the live music show was to support live music where we could have people play in a safe environment and broadcast it to people elsewhere. And it's been a lot of fun. But the baked potato is still, and I'm not just saying that because I played there a billion times, but uh, it, it really is a fantastic club, just iconic in, in the L.A. music scene. 
And, you know, you guys started it so many years ago, and now you're playing there, you said June 5th? Right, yeah, we'll be there. Okay. You know, when you think about it, it was started in September 17th of 1970. Wow. And, and to, to some of the greatest musicians of all time, one of my favorite stories of the baked potato is I happened to be in there one night when Harry Sweets Edison band was wow. playing, great trumpet player, and he had a dynamite band with him. And I'm sitting at the front door, and in walks, as far as I'm concerned, God. It was Oscar Peterson, you know, and I see him, and he was alone. So I stood up, and I shook his hand, and I introduced myself. And he says, he sits down, and he says, I'm going to sit with you. And Sweet sees him immediately and tries to get him to come up on the bandstand. But he said, no, no, I, I'm not, not tonight. So he's sitting with me, and he says, that piano's the same piano I play. I said, I know, it's there because of you. I had seen him play in Chicago at a place called the London House, and they had a Steinway B that he played. And I always thought, one day, if I ever have a place, it's going to be a Steinway B. And that's what it was. That piano was there forever. And then at one point, you actually had a MIDI mod on that acoustic piano. Yes, we did. They they did it, and it it ran synthesizers. It was great. I always remember one thing. Like My quick first baked potato story is I had just gotten up to Northridge to go to college, and some friends of mine who I played music with down in San Diego drove up for the night. (laughs) And they're like, we got to go to the baked potato. And I hadn't heard of the club, and you were playing there that night, and it was John Guerin was playing drums and Carol Kay was playing bass. And all I can remember, and it was just, it was so cool. I mean, I was in L.A. as a musician for the first time <laughs> and going to college. And I just remember that you guys played a swing song that was so fast, John Guerin had to use two hands to play the ride cymbal. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> but it was just, uh, yeah, the baked potato, it's just an amazing thing. So, uh, hey, listen, let me, let me finish that story with Oscar. Oh, yeah. So Oscar's sitting there, and Sweets tries to get him to play quite a few times, and he won't do it. And finally, they take a break. I said, Oscar... That piano was there because of you. Won't you play just one song? So he looks at me and he says, okay, I'm going to do one song for you. So he walks up to the keyboard and sits down and immediately Sweets comes run over to, with the band. He says, no, 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 I'm just doing this for the owner. <laughs> so he starts playing. But what I didn't know, at the corner of the bar at the Baked Potato was a singer by the name of Sarah Vaughn. Wow. And as he started to play, Sarah walked over to him, and he says, Sarah, she said, Oscar, and they ended up playing just Sarah and Oscar Peterson for 30 minutes for a half hour. You could hear a pin drop, but then he sang duets with her on two songs, and he sounded like Nat Cole when he sang. It was just just beautiful, and here we are. It's it, No tape recorders going. Nothing's going on. What a great thing that would have been to record. Unbelievable. Oh gosh, yeah. But thank God I was there, you know. Wonderful story. And, uh, okay, so now albums. Your first album was 1962. Right. Where do we go from here? No, it wasn't. Oh. It was called Feeling Like Blues. Oh, okay. I that t- was for World Pacific. Okay. Where Do We Go From Here was the second album mm. for Verve. We went to moved over to Verve for two albums and onward. We now have 22 different albums. Yeah, and then in 63 was when Mexican Pearls came out. Sure, yeah, that was a big deal. And that, was, that made top 40. That did. Wow, amazing. And then you got into this. Now you have the, the band Quest. How long has it been Don Randy and Quest? Well, I think around 1974. Okay. 
that's that's when that started. We were the Baked Potato Band, Don Rennie and the Baked Potato Band before that, but everybody wanted to be called the Baked Potato Band, so I lost <laughs> I lost out. So we came. You know, and Quest was it's a good name. Yeah. But for me it was we, we I'm never satisfied. I can get happy with something, but I'm never really satisfied. And and it's always in search of, which is the definition of Quest. Right. Very cool. And then your latest album is the duet with with John. John, yeah. That was so much fun doing. Acoustomania. Yeah. I, I do show notes of these things, so I will put the links to those specific yes. albums and a bunch of Don's sure. stuff in his artist pages so you can find it. But Acoustomania, tell us about that. That that was fun. We did it at a studio in Pasadena called Firehouse, which is no yeah. longer there. It's gone. But they had a wonderful Bosendorf acoustic piano that was just amazing. And we just – John and I rehearsed for almost 10 months. We knew every song. And we actually recorded it in one day. We were done at the end of the day. We did a couple of little pickups the next day, but that was about it. Uh, it just, it was wonderful. And Damon uh, Tedesco, Denny's brother, was the uh, engineer of that. Wow. Pretty, pretty wild. That, that album was so much fun doing because it's all original music, too, that we wrote mm-hmm. for the album. Yeah, it's really, it's really a cool album, so... Well, just so you know, people in the chat room are talking about their favorite shows at the Baked Potato. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, well, I think we're going to come close to the end. There's, I still have so many notes of things we talked to. Uh, said your most fun album was the Merry Christmas with Phil Spector, which I think you mentioned earlier. Yeah, sure. And then uh, you had some great stories about touring with Nancy Sinatra. Do you want to tell the Linda Carter story, or should we just keep that between oh, us? <laughs> that was that was it. She was so wonderful to work for, but yeah. her her husband was a moron. So what can I tell you? <laughs> as as will happen sometimes with the managers. <laughs> so I, I guess the uh, the last story I want you to tell, and I I know this story because you you guys do a uh, Wrecking Crew reunion tribute to Glenn Campbell, who was originally one of the guitar players with you guys. Oh, he he was he was amazing. Glenn, we, we all knew he could sing because we would do demos. They were called Two for Twenty Five. We would do them in Studio B at, at, at uh, Gold Star, and Leon Russell and I would do a lot of them, uh, some of the other guys. But the songwriter got us for an hour, and they could ha- get two songs. They had to do it, and then somebody else. And we did it like one day a week for a while, I think on a Saturday or a Sunday. But Glenn sang all those demos for those songs. He, I'd, say, I'd say he sang 80% of them for the songwriters. Wow. And so those demos were better than, than they ended up being original records. I mean, they were just amazing. And he would learn so fast. Unbelievable. Because, we, call, we called them elephant ears. Yeah, because he didn't read music, did he? No. No. No, not at all. But he heard music <laughs> quicker than any of us. Right. That's uh, that's That's... That's the intro. I play and play through the whole song, I'm Not Gonna Miss You, Yeah, which is the very last thing I got to do with Glenn. And, and he and I sat across from each other, and, and he didn't even know who I was. And we had worked together all those years. It, it just I get choked up even talking about it now. I sat there crying and playing the song with him. Yeah, and cause... there he is just playing the guitar and singing amazing. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to miss you, you know. Well, you were saying that Glenn had a 
degenerative disease, right? Yes, he had uh, uh, what is it, Alzheimer's, really bad. Yeah, and so when he, you guys had all been thick as thieves as part of the wrecking crew, and then he came back later to sing this song with you guys, and he he couldn't remember any of you. No, that must have been heartbreaking. It's it was such hard. A, it was amazing. Joe Osborne, Hal Blaine, and myself, mm-hmm. and we were actually we were at a NAM show, and they called us and got us down there. They sent a car for us. Mm-hmm. And we all went because they knew we were there for the wrecking crew. They were showing the film. Yeah. And we all went back and did it, you know. And yeah. you know what the saddest thing for me, though, is so many of the guys are passed on, you know, and they all were such great musicians, such right. great musicians. Yeah, we were talking about uh, Earl Palmer, who is one of the original. Well, you have two drummers on the uh, wrecking crew in the Wall of Sound sessions. But, yes, sure. And uh, and he was a great cat. He used to just he used to hang. You know, at the clubs, Charlie O's down the street and stuff like that. It was a really good cat. Uh, Earl Palmer was one of my favorite human beings of all time. He yeah. and I used to go to basketball games, baseball games, and and he was just just a, an all around, completely different style of of how, where how played his stuff and Earl played his. Earl was more of a a, a, a blues jazz player, mm-hmm. New Orleans style, whereas Hal was more of like a. Heavy hitter, big man almost. Right. You know, playing rock and roll. Interesting. So I wanted to end on that story because I, I know that Glenn story and it's it's so powerful. When I first heard uh, you guys talking about it on the show, uh, it's that's that's amazing. And uh, so I want to thank you, Don. Do you want to play one more song for us as we go out? Uh, I'll play a little. Play a little something. Don, it's Thank been you. it's been a pleasure. It has been so much fun, and there's so many great comments in the chat rooms about this. Toby sums it up and just says, "Don." Thank you for bringing us joy all these years. Oh, <laughs> so, that's lovely. You'll ha- we'll have to have you come back and, and bring some of the other cats from the from the wrecking crew and and just you guys can tell more stories that we don't know and haven't been printed yet. <laughs> sure, sure. That would be wonderful. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to play the outro and I want you all to stay and watch because I spend hours on these every week. <laughs> it's a little blurb. <laughs> you know, I pay a fortune for the voiceover guy, so it really helps if you could just watch it to the end. And then we'll, if you can come back Thursday to see the Dave Dirge, Dave the Dirge Trio. That would be awesome. And then keep supporting us. You can tip uh, anytime you want. If you're watching a archive of this, you can still tip. So uh, I think we have had a problem with uh, YouTube. It seems to have died on us. So I will replace that on YouTube with the Facebook stream so people who can, are looking for it can find it. And like I said, if you want more info on all this stuff, I will put a uh, show notes page up very soon. So uh, here we go with the outro. Let me see if I can find the right button. There it is. Oh, I can't. I may have to do the manual click. And thank you, Don, and we will see everybody soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us at Live at Zero BPM. These videos will be archived on YouTube and Facebook, so tell your friends. These Jazz Roundtable shows will also be released as a podcast, so please subscribe. Coming up on Tuesday, June 1st. 
hits. The Jazz Roundtable number seven, Composer Night, featuring some of LA's best big band composers. Showtime, 7 to 8 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. And as always, it's free. Oh, donations are really appreciated. Go to live at zerobpm.com for details and to sign up for our mailing list. Also, find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. See you soon.